The conditions for making art in the city are completely 100% different than when I was in the 70s, you know, when my generation came here. And I don't think it's a sustainable model at all for a young artist, unless they're independently wealthy. Welcome to the October 4th, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. Today's episode starts when I first heard that Deborah Cass's eight-foot-tall Oyo sculpture was being installed in front of the Brooklyn Museum. That news made me happy. Deborah Cass is an artist who gained wider recognition for her work in the 80s and 90s as she blended the zeitgeist of multiculturalism, neo-pop, and satire into works like Double Double Yentl, My Elvis from 1993, which riffs off Andy Warhol's famous Elvis series and replaces the white American rock star with Barbara Streisand in Yentl, which, of course, was a cinematic adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof. Recently, her work has taken on a more formalist tone, and Oyo is part of that newer wave of work. For an artist who has long worked in the obscurity of the art world, I mean, how many artists are really, truly famous anyway? She now has a hit, a sculpture that inevitably ends up on our social media feeds whenever it's shown publicly. So I asked her, what's it like making a popular work of art? It was really a surprise, but it's not like I didn't think about populist art my whole career, because I did. Right. And I used to talk about Andy was a pop artist as in populist. Right. And that he was the Irving Berlin of art. Right. And, and Warhol, of course, was hugely important to your body of work. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, the thing with this piece that's so wild, it was kind of a distillation of everything I really care about mm -hmm. in a completely unexpected form, in a completely unexpected time. Right. And its success and its popularity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's popularity and the populist message of it. These are the things I th have been thinking about forever. I just, I never, being in the art world my whole life, mm -hmm. like starting going to MoMA and the Met in high school, it never occurred to me that I would make a popular piece of art. I thought of populism, I thought of populist, but just not popular. So actually let's drill down into that a little because <laughs> I think it like that gets to the essence of what a lot of artists I mean, it's almost like an anxiety or a fear. It's like, you know, there are artists that make very popular works, and then there are those that make the serious works, you know, or right. so-called, at least in the traditional kind right. of binary. Now, did you ever have that fear? Do you ever fear, like, that it changes your body of work? or? Well, actually, it never occurred to me that I would make a popular piece of art. Oh. It, it just never was on the agenda. So, you know, I, I prefer, you know, I think it's part of being a painter or something. Like, everyone has such a big opinion about painting. It's like, oh, but it's not good. Oh, but I don't like the surface. Oh, mm -hmm. but I don't like the content. I don't like the form. You know, everyone's got an opinion. Right. <laughs> there was something so undeniable about making an 8 foot by 17 and a half foot yellow sculpture. Right. That took it completely out of the realm of anything <laughs> I'd ever done before. <laughs> the whole thing was a surprise. And I did really recognize it the minute it was installed. I think about music all the time and my work mm -hmm. is really involved with music and you know music does this thing that 
visual art rarely, rarely does. And Walter Pater, this philosopher, mm -hmm. said this thing, you know, all art aspires to the condition of music. Mm -hmm. And I've used music, I've used lyrics, I've just, it really is the subject of my work. And I didn't know that I was actually kind of aspiring to do that. You know, like I, I thought about it. It's like in the best of all possible worlds. Wouldn't it be great if painting really spoke to a zillion? people wow. and they got the message so so let's let's continue that a little so then okay. in, in your in your body of work is oyo the opera is it the pop song is it the the you know what is it it's a hundred percent the pop song gotcha it's got the hook I mean, I used to do those shows at Casman. Mm -hmm. I saw them as albums, like concept oh, albums. Okay. Like I was like, okay, I'm gonna do like a Frank Sinatra invented the concept album. Gotcha. Barbara always had an emotional arc to the album. So I'm gonna do, like my show's gonna have an emotional arc and there'll be eight cuts, 10 cuts, you know, 10 paintings. Wow, so you paintings. really thought of them that way. Oh yeah, way. I really did. Uh, yeah, totally. And the idea for Oyo, where'd it come from? Unsurprisingly for Deborah Cass, Another artwork was the impetus. That came from me standing in front of Ed Ruscha at MoMA one day. And it said, oof. And I just thought, oi. <laughs> and that was it. I made the painting. A friend of mine saw the reflection in a, in, a, in a window and said, you know, it says yo in the reflection. And I said, so should I paint it? You know, I've really incorporated yep. Andy yep. Warhol's yep. aesthetic. Yep. Like, should I paint it? <laughs> you're you're and, like, great idea. Should great, I do great. it? <laughs> should I do it? She said, yeah, you should do it. And so I did it. And then my print publisher, Lococo Fine Arts in St. Louis, um, we talked about making it into a tabletop sculpture, which we did. Mm -hmm. We made this cute little chunky 10 by 20 inch thing. But that wasn't enough. Well, I, I just got the opportunity to make it big. It's just a matter of opportunity. So I know, but you decided on the size. So now how did you figure that out? It, You're like... Good question. I just thought it should be eight feet tall. Why? Because Patty told me. <laughs> so Patty's your partner? Yes, she's my wife. And yep. honestly, I said, how big should it be? Should it be six feet? She said, no, it should be eight feet. So it was just a matter of arithmetic, how wide it got. Wow. Like, which is okay, that's same, kind of awesome. It's, it's the so, exact same proportion as the Well, I love, I love eight feet, too, because it's also, no one's quite that tall. Oh, yeah. So it's going to tower above 99.999% of people in the world. Well, she's made monumental sculpture. So she's she like, knows. She knows She knows. And she's like, you put it in the landscape, it better be big. It also reveals the fact that two people can see, or three people, can see the same sculpture or and four. see something totally different. Or four. Or four. Or five, I guess. <laughs> or five, yeah. But, you know, it's like, that's kind of one of the pleasures of the sculpture, but it's also that ambiguity, you know, where the same people can see the same thing in front of their perspective. E pluribus unum. Right. So it's like, I think about that, and I, I try to make it, like, try, try to reassure myself with it. Like, oh, you know, it's not that the world's falling apart necessarily. Maybe their perspective is just skewed. Well, like Hannah, am I being too optimistic? Yes, Hannah um, Gadsby. Did mm -hmm. have you watched her? Yes, and she talks about Picasso. Yes, and she said, "So what's the big deal about multiple perspectives? Mine isn't there." <laughs> I love an art historian stand-up. That's comic. right. She's a comedian with the Netflix special. It's like it's true, right? With an art history degree. Yeah, with an art history degree, but it's true. It's like, what's the point of multiple what's, perspectives if, if it mine doesn't isn't include there? mine? 
<laughs> and it's like, thank you for not liking Picasso because I don't particularly like Picasso. And why is that an interesting thing? We have a few things in common I discovered. Most prominently among them is our love for Brooklyn. On that topic, we're on the same page. Wait, how long have you lived in Brooklyn? Oh, we moved in 2002 in December, so really 2003. Okay. It's and official, 15 years, but my studio was there first. Okay. And are you a hardcore Brooklynite now? Yeah, totally. First of all, I lived in one loft in Tribeca my whole adult life. Oh, so wow. 25 to 50. I was on West Ooh. Broadway in a small but very beautifully lit loft. Wow. And I just needed to really move once. But my sister moved out there probably 35 years ago from the village. Mm -hmm. And literally the first time I came out, and she's across from the museum. So when I got out of Eastern Parkway and went to my sister's then pretty funky building that's now really fancy, um, I just got out of the subway and I went, I I actually want to live here. Okay, so It just took a long time to get there. Okay, so now a few things about Brooklyn you love. I, you know, I have to tell you, I love my house. Okay. I love my studio, which is my third studio in Brooklyn. And I've been Great in this place. one 17, maybe years. Okay. Those two are important. Super important. Yeah. Anything else you like about Brooklyn? I love my block. <laughs> I do. It's like Sesame Street. It's so pretty. I love my garden. I love that I drive everywhere, which is probably, I wish I, you know, I wish I didn't have to, but I'm sort of in this kind of little bit of a... Uh, sort of residential dead zone, right, so I right. kind of need the car a lot. I wish I didn't have to drive as much as I do, but I drive, which I love. I actually really like. I'm right. from Long Island. I like to drive. It's all good. So, um, but it's just so much quieter. I mean, yeah. by the time I left Tribeca, I was just had had it. I mean, I could not stand how noisy my block had become. You know, the garbage pickups for all the restaurants, starting with the Odeon, mm-hmm. which I still go to all the time because yep. it's still my home base. Um, it was really noisy and really, yeah, I was also on a fourth floor walk up and I had bad knee problems. So Got that it. was like a pain. And I, I wanted to, pay, literally, and I really did want to move once in my adult life. And I knew I wanted, I really did want to move to Brooklyn for a long time. It wasn't pressing. But once my studio first one was out in East Bushwick, and then I moved into the building I'm in now downstairs, and then I moved upstairs, and Patty and I split half a floor. I've been there, you know. It's the lifestyle. That's right. That's what I say. It's the lifestyle. It's so much better. And they're like, do you miss tribe? Everyone's like, because I was such a Tribeca person. Right. And I showed in Soho, Mm -hmm. and, you know, we just walk up to Soho to openings all the time with my friends from Tribeca and knew everybody on the street. It was your village, really. It was really my village. I wanted anonymity when I moved to Brooklyn. Didn't get it, but, you know, because it's a cute little block. But part of it was I want to, like, leave the house and not know everyone I bump into. In your garden, maybe. (laughs) Maybe in my garden. No, it's it's more anonymous compared to 25 years in Gotcha. You know, and remember, Tribeca was all artists I knew. Yeah, right. And whether it was Mel Bachner walking down the street or, you know, you just like Elizabeth Murray lived down the street. It was just anyone I saw, I knew. And um, it was really a nice community that way till it became this other thing and people started losing their places. And 
you know, you're the only people I know left there either bought early like I yeah. did or are in loft laws. Right. Loft law Ex- lofts. Exactly. Yep. So still true. I know. There's, even even in this neighborhood change. in Williamsburg, same I bet, thing. I know I can't even believe Williamsburg. That's insane. I printed my Yentles on North Third. No way. In that building that now has like Ralph Lauren in it. Yeah. And if I told you what that looked in nineteen ninety two. Yeah, that building with all the apartments and stuff, right? Oh, my that's God. The one, that's right? where I did the big Yentles. Wow. On the third floor. Wow. And, you know. The, and those the, are, like, now going for, like, $7,000 a oh, month. Geez. Two bedrooms or something. Well, it was tiny. There was, like, a really big vacuum table and about two feet around it. Now let's switch gears a little. I wanted to ask her a big question. How can art matter now? in this moment? I mean, it's this is the question I'm asking myself morning, noon, and night. Mm. And um, I will say that representation still matters, even mm-hmm. though it's not exactly what I do anymore, so specifically. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't mm. know. I mean, honestly, this is where Oyo comes in. Yeah. It matters. That piece does matter. Probably because it's like music. <laughs> Right. You know, probably because it means so much to so many people because mm-hmm. it's something with which they literally identify with. Right. So what is that it that Wait, it identify with? Wait, with which they identify. Right. But what is it that they identify? Because I get that. Yeah. Do you know? That I it, know. But what is it? The words. Just those words? The words. Think? I mean, I've been using words specifically because, I mean, I used Andy because everyone mm-hmm. was familiar with Andy. Right. He was so ubiquitous, and it was a language I thought I could say what I wanted using this completely familiar visual right. form. And and it led to literal words because it used to be that, you know, I was in all these shows about identity, mm-hmm. which I found any artist, I think, finds it kind of boring at a certain point. Where I really After the second or fifth show. After the fifth, sixth, seventh, <laughs> whatever, Stonewall show, you know, and it has to be like a Jewish lesbian show or something. But <laughs> but I honestly got, you know, I thought so much about the issues of identity and representation. But what in doing that, I realized it shouldn't be identity. Identity is like what you're born into. Right. You're born this way. Right. So to speak. But it's what you identify with that really is a very active consumption of the world. Mm. Whether it's like a song or a painting or a person, or you like the way someone dresses and you go, now I want to dress that way. Right. Like you construct yourself out of the outside world by an act of identification. And it's a very active, it's not a noun, Mm -hmm. it's a verb. And it's how we form ourselves, really. We are mm. formed in relation to the world. I mean, at least I was. I guess I shouldn't talk for everyone. I mean, that doesn't talk about my limitations that were put on me from mm-hmm. exterior forces. But just, why did I love Barbara Streisand? Why did I fall in love with Stephen Sondheim? Because you're it, human. Because I'm human. Because he's God. <laughs> and so is she. But, you know, it's like, so I was really interested in this act of identification. And and all those word paintings were me kind of saying, okay, I just started when I turned 50. It's a long time ago now. And I, it was, I really wanted it to be about my generation. 
It ended up being more about my parents because evidently that's the music I really identify with. Wow. But but the but the musical thing had to do with middle class ness, right. which is so poo pooed in the art world, and gets us back to Oyo and how great it is that it works the way it does. So why do you think middle classness is poo pooed in the art world? Well, I can tell you is when I moved to New York, just about everyone my age came from the New York suburbs, and we were all humiliated by it. Gotcha. Because. Because it's boring. Right. And it, it was so conformist and so boring and right. so unaspirational. I mean, I could go through the list of artists my age and every one of them's from, not, I would say a 80, good chunk. 80% right. are right, from right, right. New York suburbs. They're from Long Island. They're from New Jersey. You know, they're from Great Neck. They're <laughs> Inglewood. You know, they're like from Connecticut. It's like really tri-state. You know, but we had access to very good edu- public educations. Mm-hmm. And all of us who ended up in Tribeca and Soho in the 70s, you know, had aspirations. And number one was get the fuck out of town. <laughs> you know, my oldest friend says, don't you remember you used to raise your hand and say, can I leave now? Really? Yep. I, I forgot. In school? Or where? Like to each other. Oh, to each you other. Know, like, yeah, you're can like, I go you're now? like, okay, it's like, can I'm moving on. I'm moving on. And I, you know, spent a lot of time in Manhattan just wishing and hoping I lived there. I couldn't wait to move. I didn't go to grad school. I just moved right into one other loft before I moved into mine. So, did you just become a working artist immediately? I was a waitress for a really long time at Broom Street okay. Bar. And so, tell us a little bit about how you became. Deborah Cass, the artist. Well, I moved to New York to become a famous waitress. <laughs> and I did. You were a famous waitress? We all were. Okay. It was gotcha. really fun. Okay, I, I, it was okay. really fun. And I was really so deeply unsocialized that I actually got somewhat socialized working at Broom Street Bar. And I'm still friends with some of my friends from then. I mean, it was really fun. So you became a famous waitress. waitress. Okay. Until I got fired. Okay. Why'd you get fired? Being nasty. Oh, no. I was having a fight with the bartender. He wouldn't give me my drinks. It's a long story. Okay. One guy tried to fire me. One of the partners, like, tried twice to fire me, and the second one, second one, I, I let it go. Okay. I'm like, okay, okay. I'm out of here. Okay, so next step. So you were famous superstar waitress. No, I wouldn't say I was a superstar waitress. Okay, well, no, we're just creating the mythology. Oh, so the superstar waitress say, fallen at the peak of her career. Yes, taken next. down by a nasty old queen <laughs> who really had a problem with me being a dyke. And I oh. didn't know that was the problem till I ran into him. 20 years later, it was Ken and Bob's Broom Street Bar. They were brothers. Okay. It was, it was, it was really a okay. spot in Soho. And um, Ken had a family. He was married to someone named Barry who had a restaurant named Barry's on Spring Street. Mm-hmm. They had a fantastic townhouse on Spring Street. And, um, and then Bob was the gay brother. And he never liked me. I was way too rough. Mm. And I was, you know, I was, I still am, but I really was then. And um, he, I ran into him really 25 years later, at least, walking down Broom Street. And he said, oh, Debbie, hi. And I went, oh, Bob, hi, how are you? He said, I'm fine. I said, how's Jerry, his boy toy, who he's still with? Oh, Jerry's good. And, and are you still a lesbian? Well, like, he didn't say, are you still making art? He said, are you still a lesbian? And I was like, that's what I thought it was 25 years ago. Wow. Yeah. 
And that that was like, hi, are how are you? Still a le- yeah, hi, how are you? Are you Where still a lesbian? Th- what, he thought you had gone through a phase? Yeah, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but like, how nuts is that? <laughs> you old queen. <laughs> anyway, may he rest in peace. So uh, it, it okay. launched me into the real world. I have to really so look at my resume to, resume to see how I actually sustained myself. But I feel like I got a grant or something. I don't know how this happened. I started, well, Baskerville and Watson mm-hmm. opened up. Mm-hmm. And I was the only artist they got out of the unaffiliated artist file at um, Artist Space. Oh, wow. So, so that worked for you. it really worked. Yeah. And I think I got fired in 81. Mm-hmm. And I think I had my first show in 83. I don't know. I feel like I got some money in there from someone. I don't know what, like, Little I know I, I got an NEA at some point that okay. was like, at that point, the big NEA was 15, Right. but that was a little later. Anyway, I don't know how it worked out. Trust me, it wasn't family money. So, so, I, so 83, you have your first show. And then from there, is it things just built up slowly or? Really slowly. Really slowly. So the, they're still building up, darling. <laughs> I, I think, I think you're getting a sculpture in front of the Brooklyn Museum. That's a pretty good build up now it's nice it's It's very nice one one more feather in your cap it's a nice it's nice i would like the sort of venice biennale equal pay for equal work kind Ah. of i'm like sick of the women artist discount she mentioned a term i hadn't heard described that way before women artists discount what does that mean for a female artist Patty and I have calculated it at about, it's a 75% discount. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How does that usually work? How do people try to approach you about it? It's not about that. It's just simply about pricing. And you say, okay, here's this artist who has a penis. (laughs) And he has, his resume looks very much like mine. Mm Mm-hmm. And that guy, well, I'll just, I'm going to quote Carrie Mae Weems, the very brilliant Carrie Mae Weems. Mm -hmm. For every $100,000 a woman makes, a man makes a million. Wow. And she said it in the Times. And really, 10% is really my number. I think that's true. I think it's 10%. And she would know. And I would know. You know, I started showing when I showed with Richard Prince and Carol Dunham mm-hmm. and Sherry Levine. And, mm-hmm. You know, it was a great gallery. And um, I was on the Whitney program with Julian Schnabel. We were buds. Oh, wow. You know, like, I, I have plenty. I've got, I've got like, five decades now. Is it five? Oh, shit. Four and a half decades in yeah. this. Wow. Of seeing what... You got your skin in the game. Oh, man. Too much. And then the topic changed to the New York art world, which is, frankly, something she's not very optimistic about. It's safe to say she's even a pessimist. Tell you this, looking around the art world now and the gallery situation and the fact that you cannot be a young artist here without having family money, mm-hmm. you just can't. I mean, I, I, I pay $260 a month for my loft. It was a little, it was low then, Yeah. but it was, yeah. I, do, I was rich when I was a waitress. And um, it that, that just doesn't exist anymore. So the fact that you need family money or be married to a very rich man to make art is not acceptable yeah, to me. That so, shouldn't be the way it works. But it is the way it works now. And it's just that 
income inequality thing just showing itself in the art world and the fact that the mid-level galleries are kind of starting to close, like Andrea Rosen and uh, um, Chimon Reed. It's a big deal. And, you know, we say at home, the mills are closing. Right. You know, they're closing. This is Ohio in about 1983, and the mills are closing. And it's it's a shift in an industry. Mm -hmm. And we are pretty powerless in that. I might have to start doing meth. <laughs> I hope you didn't start doing meth. Well, I was, you know, J.D. Vance's book last summer. Let's not, let's not recreate Breaking no, Bad. I'm kidding. <laughs> the J.D. Vance, you know, book last summer, which I had a lot of problems with, but it evoked such, you know, when, you know, it's about his family mm-hmm. who left the hollers in Kentucky for jobs in Ohio in mills in Ohio, and that there was this huge exodus of poor white people mm-hmm. into Ohio and into more industrial states from the rural south um, to work in mills. And the first generation, his grandfather, you know, you were part of a union, you made good money, your mm-hmm. wife stayed home, the kids went to school. And then it, from that generation, it's just been going downhill and downhill and downhill as manufacturing left. and the decimation of these communities, these white, yeah. poor communities now. So, But Deborah, there's a contradiction there too, right? Because in some ways there we have more galleries than ever and museums and funds, money going into the industry. And then at the same time, there is this environment where it feels like a lot of people are struggling. They are struggling. But I'll also say things, this is very different under Donald Trump. You know, what you're talking about was like the Obama heyday. Mm-hmm. And I certainly had it. You know, I mean, I've had a really cool 10 years, really good. Um, well, not as good as <laughs> I made a living. Yep. And uh, it's really different now. The instability mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in the whole world created by this guy, the economic instability. Mm-hmm. If I was a really rich person, I wouldn't be art- buying art right now. Right. I mean, this is not the time, simply not the time. So who sustains young artists then? How is that possible? Who sustains old artists then? Right, right, You know? I mean, it's weird. Like right now, a couple museums are buying things. You know, I left Casman. Woohoo! I left Casman at the end of the year, and everything's, I've had a very decent year. Mm -hmm. Um, Congratulations on selling. Thank you. And, um... But I do think that the worldwide instability because of Trump is going to really wreak havoc on the luxury market that's art. Right. And I guess I heard Jeff Koons laid off 30 people from his studio. That's 30%. And I figure if Jeff Koons is laying off 30%, it's soft on the high end also. Art just seems like so <sighs> visual art. I mean, then you watch Aretha's funeral right. all day, and you're like, this is why it does matter. But right. it, again, it's music. Well, I mean, I think visual art often is like our experience with it can be very short, meaning like you go to a museum or something. But I'll tell you, living near the OEO, it is different. 
You know, maybe it is. It feels more constant. It feels timeless because art does function in a different time. Yeah, it does. You know, so the sense of time, I think, sometimes is what brings it a different phase. So even seeing that and walking by, and you know, it might have been raining that day, or yeah. you missed your ferry or something. Yeah. But you know, at the end of the day, it feels like a constant. You know. Well, it's that's um, why I like having old art sometimes around in the apartment. I have a couple of things that are a few hundred years old, small yeah, things, yeah. And, because something about them kind of gives you the sense of like, oh, these will be here it's when I'm. It's the timelessness, not. I guess. Yeah. And finally, because of her famous series that focused on the singer Barbara Streisand, I had to ask her: Does she have a favorite song by the singer? Oh, I can't even start. I mean, no. No, you don't have a favorite. I don't. I'm not. I don't have favorites with songs. I. I honestly don't. I. I'll tell you my favorite. Can you sing any Barbara Streisand for us? I don't sing. Can you hum it? No. Nothing. No, I don't. Yentl, nothing. I don't do. I don't do. Okay, I'm going to put Yentl in the background of this right now, so everyone can listen to it. So now, what would you say as Yentl is playing? Oh. You're killing me here. I mean, it's not like my favorite soundtrack. <laughs> I'm thinking, Papa, can you, you only, hear me? Because it's the only one only, I can think yeah, of. You only painted it a million times, but, but okay. Well, I love the Broadway album and okay. the uh, the next Broadway That's album. That's my favorite song, by the way, by her. Send in the Clowns. Well, I'm sure Sondheim would agree. So I think it's a pretty amazing song. Um, but I like putting it together. I mean, I do love her Sondheim stuff. Yeah. And I love Send in the Clowns. Okay, I'll tell you what she just did in the last album that killed me. Because I thought no one could do it better than Bernadette. But it made me sob. Um, not a day goes by. Okay. And if you've got your CD, it's the duet album. And yeah. if you got your CD from Target, there were four extra cuts that were all <laughs> her solo. And it's not unlike the one you get from Amazon. And her rendition of uh, Not a Day Goes By is unbelievable. Okay. Yeah. And on that note, I'm going to say Deborah. Thank you for your time okay. and for bringing Oyo into the world. And it's landing back here in Brooklyn very shortly. Thank you for having me. Deborah Cass's Oyo is currently installed in front of the Brooklyn Museum. And it's part of a larger exhibition called Something to Say, which began this week and continues until next summer. The year-long activation, as they're calling it, is co-curated by Sharon Matt Atkins and Carmen Hermo. The other artists featured are Brooklyn High Art Machine, Camilla Janan Rashid, and Hank Willis Thomas, all of whom will present their work in other public spaces. The museum is hosting a community day this Saturday, October 6th, for those who are interested. This podcast featured sound artist Bradford Reed, who performed this past weekend as part of the 24-hour Sonic Transmission Archive event at the Newburgh Open Studios in Newburgh, New York, which, for those of you who may not be familiar, is the town across the Hudson River from Beacon in upstate New York. I was able to attend the Sunday portion of the event, which is a Wave Farm Partner Transmit project, and it was organized by Ethan Primison and Caroline Partamian. I got to hear and record this performance myself. Congrats to everyone involved on this epic sound event that featured 24 performances. And thanks to the artists and organizers for allowing us to play the sound art piece. I'm Rog Vartanian, 
the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.